So in the multitude of dreamers, so the multitude of dreams are those who are dreamers, uh, and many words, there is also vanity, which, we, again, we talked about that last week, and people that we've known that they, they're going to do all these kind of things, and they, they're very, they're very um, big on expressing what they're going to do, but their follow-through is severely lacking. And, um, and that, I think that's what Solomon has in mind here, and that's when he says that, there is also, and in and many words, there is also vanity. And um, so, not only the dreaming, but the continuous talking. Now, n- nobody here, of course, right? But uh, you ever met people who just seem to talk and talk and talk and talk, and they really don't say a thing? You're not supposed to say their name. No, I didn't hear you if you did. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, it, it, but, but it, this is, it's vanity, or as other translations say, futility. Um, NIV says futility, meaningless, okay. Um, but also taken in the context of giving a vow, but not fulfilling it. You know, and, 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 you know, as I, I talked about <clears throat> this, I, I mentioned this last week, but I'm, it's coming to mind again, so I'm going to touch on it briefly and then keep going. How many p- guys that I knew that, you know, we, we grew up in a church that had altar calls, and sometimes the altar calls were longer than the sermon? And, uh, you know, um, you too, huh? And it's, and, and, you know, those things turn into like a form of spiritual peer pressure, in my opinion. Uh, I think there's a place for them. Um, they're really actually an 1800s invention, by the way. The early church didn't use them. It, it, it's really a... Um, his name just came in and out of my head, but one of the evangelists in the 1800s, he, he kind of developed this idea, and then it, it kind of took on uh, steam during the, uh, the Great Awakening of the early to mid-1800s. And, uh, but, but I knew so many guys that surrendered to God's calling me to full-time ministry. And I was like, I'm never going to go forward for that. I just, uh, like, I'm not, that's not, and I never did, right? <laughs> and I think in, our, in, in that group of guys, and we had a pretty large youth group. It was over 100, right? And, and in, in that group of guys, I think there's, there's, two, maybe three of us, and I don't remember him ever going forward either, but Joe, right? Um, there's two, maybe three of us that are in pastoral ministry today. So um, I don't know if that means anything. Probably not. But, uh, but, but then it adds this idea of fearing God. Now, I think this phrase where it says, but fear God. So don't offer vows. Don't let your mouth... Run away from you. That's a nice way to say it, huh? <laughs> um, but fear God. But I think this but fear God is to be taken into this next section that we're going to look at tonight. Because if there's ever a section that's difficult, and that's why I want to, I want to hear from the different translations. Um, verse 9 particularly is a very difficult verse and trying to figure out what in the world 
is going on here. But it's, he's transitioning, really, from the church. But more I think about it, it's a transition, yes, but it's not a huge transition because it's a transition from church or uh, the temple worship at that time, remember? All right. Temple was probably newly built when Solomon wrote this. Okay. Going from the, the worship of, of God in Israel to the political spectrum. Now, it's a transition, but I'm almost interposing my 2022 th- thinking on, upon that. Because, and let me explain. I saw that look. Um, Israel, when this was written, looked like a monarchy. But in reality, and what's the monarchy? It's when you have one king, the ruler of one, okay? Um, It looked like a monarchy. But in reality, and particularly if if you've really done some good study in the Old Testament, looking at 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, and, and some of the other books, you have a king who was guided primarily by the prophet. And the prophet was kind of the check valve. Um, for instance, who did David have? Nathan. Nathan. Who did Saul have? Samuel, right? And then others. But, but, and, and the prophets were the ones who really heard from the Lord. And they were probably the only very few that could get away to speaking to the kings like, for instance, like Nathan did. When, when he told him the story, when, when, when God revealed to him that, that Nathan had, had, had adultery with uh, Bathsheba and then had Uriah put to death. What? Did I say Nathan? No, I didn't. No, I'm kidding. Check the tape. <laughs> All right, thank you. Thank you for that. Okay, yeah, but I couldn't quite hear you. Um, so... It wasn't a monarchy. It was what some Bible commentators refer to as a theocracy. Where God was really ruling. But he ruled through the human agency of the king who was over, really, in a sense, overseen by the prophet. And, and so you have this kind of a unique structure. Uh, political structure, if you will. Um, that's why I'm saying the transition from the temple to the, the institution of rulership and leadership in Israel was not a huge transition. Besides that, what we do see later on during the time of Jesus, this is after Israel goes into exile 70 years, then comes back out of exile. I said Israel, I really meant Judah because Israel was dispersed. And they never really came back. Um, you had the religious rulers were the, also the political rulers of the day. They had a lot of power. Had a lot of power. So you have this in verse 8 where it says, If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. 
for high official watches over high official and higher officials are over them. This is a very difficult passage. Uh, I'm going to read verse 9 and then later ask somebody else to read verse 9 out of their translation where it says, Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. So that makes it even, it's like, what's going on? Exactly, Bonnie, I saw that look. I felt the same way. Because this is a very difficult passage not only grammatically to translate, which makes that even worse, right? The, the New Living Translation, I cannot remember if that is a word-for-word dynamic or thought-for-thought. Um, I think it's more of a thought-for-thought, but the reality is there is no translation that is completely word-for-word. You guys know that, right? Uh, it, it, it just doesn't equate. Um, but this, this, this passage, it really doesn't, in and of itself, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Eight and nine. Yeah, and that's 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 as much of that's as much a, as an interpretive translation as it is a raw Hebrew to English translation. And I forgot to look it up in the Septuagint, which I really prefer okay but anyway uh the waters are already muddied enough i can sense it okay so you have this the the writer here solomon he's really complaining about the prevalence of corruption all right he's talking about and the funny thing is he's talking about his government and how it's corrupt but all of a sudden it starts talking about farming niv verse 9 Okay, increase from, of the land is taken by all, and the king himself profits from the field. A little different than what the N, NLT says. NASB says, so that flips it completely. Okay, so, yeah, totally different. So, are we all confused? Yes, let's go ahead and close in prayer, and then we'll drink coffee. But no, so it's... And nobody else has a, a, any other different translation. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, oh, I've got one. I forgot to, okay, I'm going to read the ESV for you. Verse 9, only. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivating fields. What? Clear as mud. Stay with me, Gary. Are you confused? Good, because I am too, okay? No, you're... no, no, committed. Um, let me read it to you again. Um, uh, but uh, this is gain for a land in every way. The king is committed to cultivating fields. It doesn't mean he's going to go out there and strap a plow to the donkey. It means he's committed to make sure it happens. Yeah. Yeah, he'll oversee his overseers who oversee who oversee. Because that's what this is talking about, right? Okay, so. Everybody has a boss. That's part of what this is referring to. And they may not be a good one. They may not be a good one. Um, So 
that's why these two verses really need to come together. Remember, the chapters and the verses are not divinely inspired. I would, your mileage may vary, I would throw in the back half of verse 7 onto this. But fear God, if you see the oppression of the poor. Now, the Psalms, Torah, um, somewhat here in Ecclesiastes, some of the other wisdom books. Um, you even see in some of the narratives, God is very near to the poor. You can't deny it in the Old Testament. God is very near to the poor. Yeah, you know, I mean, let's put this in a different perspective. Jesus was homeless. He was. He had, the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. Okay? Um, and so I'm thinking of the proverb. And gosh, I don't know why I didn't think of this earlier, but what happened in front of me. Uh, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. Right? And, and you cannot out-give God. And so Solomon here is uncovering something that is very near and dear to God's heart. But he's also saying, everybody has a boss. Not every boss is a good boss. And so you have this hierarchical chain of command whereby eventually the guy who's actually plowing the field, and they didn't have a plow in a, well, yeah, anyway, the guy who's actually plowing the field is the one who's being oppressed. You know, and it, it's, if you remember in the narrative, I think it's in First Kings, when Solomon passed away, the nation, this before the, the nation had split in two, they complained to Rehoboam, right, the son of Solomon, that your father was too hard on us. They complained about it, and they said, if you will lessen our burden, we will serve you and we will be devoted to you. And he, Solomon went, Rehoboam, excuse me, went to his counselors, and he went to the old guys, and they said, yeah, do what the people are telling you. And, and that you'll have their, their loyalty, their allegiance. He went to his young counselors, and they said, you know what? Tell them if Solomon did this, I'm going to do this. To, I'm paraphrasing here, of course. I'm going to do this to you and more. And he took the young advisor's advice, and that's what caused the split. That was essentially that, that, that point which caused a split where the ten tribes went with who? Jeroboam. And Benjamin and Judah stayed together under the rule of Rehoboam. And, and so, you know, history plays this out. And so you have the oppression of the poor. Uh, and notice violent perversion of justice. And um, what does that mean? Does that necessarily always mean a physical violence? Not necessarily. Um, it's also interesting to remember, and this is fascinating to me that we're reading this the day after a midterm election. <laughs> um, 
And this was not written at a time of a democracy. This was written at a time of a theocracy, as I told you earlier. Because in, in, when it comes to rules, ruling, when it comes to political structures, I don't know why I'm going to go here, but I'm going to touch on this briefly and keep going. There are three primary forms of rulership or leadership or oversight, however you want to call it. Now, there are also three primary colors. What are the primary colors? Blue, yellow, and red, right? Now, when you start mixing different combinations, you end up with all kinds of different colors. But there are three primary rules, ruler form, forms of rulership or leadership or governance that, that we see in humanity. There's the rule of one. There's the rule of the, many, of the few. And then there's the rule of the many or the all. And here you have what appears to be the rule of one, which would be a monarchy, which is the virtuous form of the rule of one. It's actually a theocracy. What is, would be the vicious form of the rule of one? It's called a tyranny. Or uh, it's another term's coming into play. It's kind of a combination called the autocrat- autocracy, where you have a group. That would be the rule of the, of the, uh, of the few. But anyway, so you have... You have these different types of leadership forms, but notice it's all hierarchical. One leader to one leader to one leader or one official. So everybody's lying in their pocket, possibly. And that's the complaint. Um, and with, with such a um, vast bureaucracy, Sure enough, there's a big temptation to line the pockets. That's why they didn't like the tax collectors during the time of Jesus because they taxed them and then they overtaxed them and put all the rest of that money in their own pocket. And they could get away with it because um, they were the tax collectors. So um, how that ties in into verse Verse 9, to me, is kind of fascinating. Um, Because what you were talking, this is an agrarian culture. Okay, we don't really believe this about ourselves today, but we really still are an agrarian culture. If they stop growing food, guess what's going to happen? Yeah, we're going to end up in a famine, and then we'll end up dying, right? But this is talking about those particular systems, the food chain, right? But the politics or the political system that oversees it. Do we not have politics overseeing our food supply today? You, you better believe we do. And you've got to be careful who you read, by the way. Um, but... These are two systems, really, that that we depend upon, and rightfully so. And yet, you have this oppression, you have this perversion of justice, um, this idea of justice is that which is right, uh, that which conforms to law, and then you have... Here where it talks about righteousness, they are two very 
very um, similar words. The concepts are similar in both the Hebrew and in the Greek. Justice and righteousness, they're two very similar concepts. Uh, but here it, it, it could uh, and probably does refer more to the judicial administration um, of overseeing the commerce, which was based on what? Agriculture, particularly then. The commerce that was based on, on agriculture and, and the, uh, the injustices. Um, and, but then he says, don't, be, don't marvel at it. What does that mean? Don't be surprised. Does that encourage? Uh, this is, there's no right answer here. Okay. Based on how you look at things politically, by the way. Does that encourage an activism or not? Does that encourage us to be passive? about the things that we see and we shouldn't marvel? Or should we not marvel and then perhaps be active? It's a tough question. It's a very tough question. I, w- I was reading an article today about some of the early Anabaptist movements and how they were severely persecuted by the state which was married to essentially the reformed church and so you had christians putting to death christians um, because the anabaptists were very resistant of the powers and I'm, i'm speaking mainly of that area around switzerland with zurich and um Habsburg, which is in Austria, and, and um, how they were not marveled, right? Obviously, they didn't marvel, but they were determined. All they had to do, had to do was deny their faith because the, the, big, the big, center, big centerpiece of conflict with them was all about baptism. And in Zurich, in, in that period of time, they passed a law that everyone will be baptized and to not, and if you were to be rebaptized, that's what anabaptism means. If you were to be rebaptized, you were to be put to death. That was the penalty for being baptized a second time. Or if your parents refused to have you baptized as an infant, then they could possibly put, be put to death. So this is this is very unclear as far as how we're to respond because. Again, we call it, and I, and I, I watched on, on, on television where, uh, I, I don't want to go into the case, I'm, I know more about it than I probably should, and you might have seen it, you might not, but you've got three, three people that are, that are claiming they're being persecuted because they wouldn't take the vaccine. And they're trying to make the whole thing about their faith, when in reality... I'm not so sure it was. And I don't think they were being persecuted because they were Christians. They were, they were, they were, they were, for, they were given an ultimatum. You either take the shot or you lose your job. So um, they lost their jobs. 
And so they're trying to make it all about their faith. And to me, it's like you missed the boat here somewhere. You know, so the political struggle, I mean, we live in a, we, we, we live in a, in, a, in a period of time where you have a, a you know, most of the candidates is 49-51, if you notice that, or some, something very close to that. Um, and that same, that same uh, perspective is also found in the church. It's also found in the church. So um, there's, a, there's a big, there's a split, but it's, but it's very close to almost like a 50-50 split of, of which way we go politically. And, and so um, these things are very, and, and I think we have to take our cues from the New Testament where, where Paul tells us to be in submission of authority which is very difficult to do. Um, I even thought about this in some churches. Uh, some churches are highly authoritarian. Um, and the pastor is never wrong. And I've known people who basically <laughs> got fired from their ministry positions because they questioned, they simply questioned the decision the pastor made. So they were fired. Now, it's kind of funny to fire a volunteer, but anyway. Um, but some were on staff. Some were getting paid by the church. And so it's Solomon here, and again, we are working with inspired scripture here. So the Holy Spirit here is not putting a stamp on corruption. He's not doing that, all right? But he's saying, don't be surprised when it happens. And again, I think the New Testament gives us, uh, when, when, my opinion, your knowledge is probably going to vary. Some of you, I know it will. When Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, I take that very seriously. I take that very seriously. And... It is the kingdom ethics, I believe. The kingdom ethics that are given to us in the entirety of the New Testament, but I think they're very, very strongly codified in the Sermon on the Mount. It is the kingdom ethics by which we are called to live. And, and, and that, that's, I mean, being part of the kingdom is still political, believe it or not. I think, I think we, I hear it from Christians all the time. Well, I don't like politics. I don't want to be involved in politics. We get two or three people in a room. You got politics going on. That's the reality. Um, and so don't be surprised, but fear God. Moreover, verse 9, the prophet of the land is for all. Even the king has served from the field. Yes, he is. I, I like the New King James translation simply because it makes more sense, but it may not be accurate, right? Uh, you know, some of your other versions talked about the king was, well, he'd be gleaning from, what wasn't gleaning, excuse me, gleaning is what you left behind. He'd be getting that first fruit. 
that really belong to the Lord. But do you see the wisdom in God, of God, in the requirement of Torah that you bring the first fruit of the fields to the house of the Lord? Because he's trying to he, I, he's trying to reprioritize our relationship and our allegiance and our submission to the Lord in the midst of his corrupt people, in the midst of his corrupt nation. Because anytime you get people involved, you got what? Problems. And that there and again, I and I always equate this again because part of it because of my own experience, but I always equate this really to the authority of the church. Um because we've had bad experiences. And, you know, what do you do? Um and you know, I, I I listen to pastors teach, well, if you don't if you can't if you can't agree with it and you can't live with it, then you quietly leave. Well, that makes a lot of sense, but sometimes, well, real quick, and I'm going to get off this, I'm going to move on, but I had a friend who was an assistant pastor of a church, and his senior pastor was having an ongoing affair, and no one else really seemed to care about it. And he brought it to light, and he got fired. Yeah, and um, things went from bad to worse for that that guy. Um, but anyway, and they eventually fired him. Um, but but it wasn't because of the adultery. How's that? Uh, which makes apps. I know. I know. Some of you are shaking your heads, and I'm, it makes absolutely no sense to me. So he hit the airways. He he blogged about it. Yeah, he 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 shouted it from the rooftops. Um, changed his life, and maybe uh, not so much in a good way. But anyway, um, so then from there we go into we start talking about money, um, and the futility of wealth. Now Solomon talked about this in verses two. Excuse me, chapter two, verses one through eleven where he talked about the futility of wealth, and a lot of this is going to be repeated here. Uh, But he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. No, he who loves abundance will increase. This also is uh, vanity. Nor he who loves abundance with increase. That's vanity. Um, I think it was Rockefeller. I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. so I'm going to say, I think it was Rockefeller who was asked, how much money is enough? And his response was just a little bit more. And, and so there's this, there's this thing about, it's hard because I like money, okay? I do. I like money, all right? But there's this thing about money um, that uh, it can very easily become that which we worship. And I've seen people do strange and rude things. How's that? Because they are so tight-fisted with their money, you know. And, and it's like, wow, you, you really do love your money, don't you? Um, and, and so what we have here is, is a 
couple of things to bring out. Um, it kind of smashes the myth that wealth brings satisfaction in verse 10. That's what he's really addressing. Because I, I, especially when, I was, when we were young, we first got married, we didn't have two dimes to rub together. Um, and and I, I think we, we, we never really solidified our, our dream of where we were going to end up. Right, I don't think any any of us here did. Right, I I think I know of people who have. But well, I knew a guy. He he was a he was an attorney, and apparently a good one. And but he was so cheap that he wouldn't even let his wife spend five bucks on lunch. Uh, and this woman was working really hard. It was actually the woman worked with Mary, and 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 because. All he wanted to do is retire, you know, and so it, it, like every penny, you know, and, and, and when you get that extreme, you know, um, what's that? It cost him their marriage. Yeah, it cost him their marriage. And when you get that extreme, it's, 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 it's you know, you hate to think of a poetic justice on a guy like that because I met him. I like the guy, actually, but... Um, but you hate to think of a poetic justice on something like that, but it's like, here you go. And, but I've known of, of a few people that they scrimp and they save and they save and they save and they retire and they find out they have cancer and they pass away, which is really tragic, actually. But um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and put a trophy on your wall, which, which makes no sense to me. But anyway, that's just me. But, um, you know, I, what you're saying, Harv, I'm going to unpack this because this would be fun. Greed really is vanity. Yeah. It's futile. You know, um, you know we, we talked about this earlier in this book where you don't, never have the U-Haul following the hearst, right? It doesn't happen. Well, I guess it, I can't say it never has happened. I'm, I'm going to have to search that one out on the web. Chris, I believe everything I read on the web, don't you? Of course. Um, it, it is the opposite of what Jesus represented when he was here on earth. Um, Jesus says in Luke twelve fifteen. so thanks for that segue. <laughs> I'll pay you later. Uh, uh, take heed and beware of covetousness which is really associated with greed, right? Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Luke 12, 15, all right? And of course, Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy six ten says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not that money is the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Um, I was, and I was reading, and I, I'll, I'll misquote it, but I was reading, John Wesley kind of was writing about this idea. And he, he said something to the effect of work hard, make more, and then give more. 
which I thought was kind of a fascinating, uh, fascinating thing to, to think about. But, but even that has its traps, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, Jesus, Jesus was sitting there with, at, at, when they were coming into the temple and they were putting their money in into the, uh, the, the, the big bowls that were for the offering and they would throw the money in there in such a way that it would spin around and ring and then you had what? This widow who came up. It's in the book of Luke. I don't remember what chapter, but this, this widow that comes up and she gives two mites that don't even equal to a penny. And Jesus said that that woman gave more than all of them combined. I hope you don't have a question about that because I'm going to have to find it. No, go ahead. I think it's very ironic, uh, and being because this is being taped, but it's also being taped, and it's in a place where you have to have the password. I call that Balaam's ass syndrome, to be honest with you. You know, you remember the story about Balaam, and he beat his donkey, right? And the donkey turned around and spoke to him, tried to correct him. Spirit of God spoke to him through that donkey, right? And it's highly ironic because it's almost, I had a friend of mine, Marty, right, years ago. He said his dad used to tell, his dad would tell all his war stories, party stories, right? When, he, I don't know why you, why you tell a teenage son this and not expect him anyway. But he would tell him about all his escapades. And then he would say, now you do what I, you don't do what I do, you do what I tell you. I'm seeing that look on your face, cousin Tim. It's like, right? You got to be kidding me, right? Well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, right? But I want to maybe tap onto that, or at least my thought about that. Because um, you basically, you said just because he had wisdom doesn't mean he applied it and lived it, right? Essentially. Okay. So, well, he had wisdom, right? He had more wisdom than, than anybody who had ever had wisdom, right? But just because you have wisdom doesn't mean you live it. Which tells me, that tells me, wisdom and following of wisdom this may be the gold piece of the night actually the following of wisdom sometimes is very difficult to do and it'll cost you and and but the thing is you know and and i i I like to to refer to this verse sin is pleasurable right and just kind of leave it dangling for a while and then it says, actually, because the verse says, sin is pleasurable for a season. And so, wisdom, he had it, made the wrong decision anyway, lived out the wrong decision, enjoyed the pleasure of his wrong decisions for a period of time. And then, 
and then he realizes the folly. That's part of, we talked about this at the beginning of this book, that's part of why it's believed. And I, I kind of lean this way. He, he didn't write this in his 20s. He wrote this probably toward the latter part of his life. Um, I want to say most people in their 20s don't have anything to say. Right. So that's, that's an interesting thing because that's not a universal. Um, but no doubt it was something that affected him in his heart. And um, because I, I've, I've listened to people teach on this, and they're like, I don't think Jesus really meant it. Well, I think Jesus really meant it with him, personally. I, I, don't, it, I don't think there, there was that much of a bait and switch going on. Um, but that, that's part of what this is talking about in verse 10, is that he who loves silver will not be satisfied, and he who loves abundance will, with increase, this is vanity. When goods increase, let's just finish out to 13, and then we'll be done. I'm almost done. Tim, do I have a few minutes? I got two minutes. Okay, thanks. Um, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. Uh, so what profit have the owners except to see them with their own eyes. So, you know, in other words, when, when you have an increase of goods and then basically different things consume it. You know, what's the old saying? I, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. You know, I, growing up, a friend with weed is a friend indeed, right? Okay, right? So, you know, if someone had a, <laughs> okay, if someone had a big bag, they had a lot of friends <laughs> until that bag was empty, right? I mean, <laughs> Some of you all explain later, but anyway, <laughs> some of you totally get, some of you laughed a little bit too hard on that one, but that's okay too. But, um, um, but that's the thing is it goods increase and then you have that thing, whatever it is, people or uh, the you know, temperature or the air or whatever or that, that come to consume that which you've increased. And so what profit uh, have the owners except to see them with their eyes? Okay, I earned this voice, isn't it great? You know, I, I knew a guy that he had a, he started this construction business. He named it after himself. He got this big logo painted on the side of his trailer that had his name on it. He'd go out there every day and just stare at it. Um, and then what happened was they were rounding a corner one day, and there was a, they, they hit a tree or something, and there was this big scratch mark right across the trailer, so his trailer wasn't quite so desirable to look at anymore, you know? And so, uh, but, you know, that's part of what this is talking about. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. So he, he's tying us back into verse 8 in verse 12. Right? Because when you work hard, what happens? You get tired. Uh, there was a man that I met who li- used to live here. He's passed away. And he owned a pretty big ranch. It's right out there, actually. And uh, I met him, and I was told he owned the ranch. And so I asked him about it. I said, what is it like to, you know, to have this place? And he says, well, we don't really own anything. We're just stewards over it for a while. And I think about that often when I drive by that ranch. Um, and he's in heaven. You know, he's with the Lord. He's a Christian. And, uh, but that really helped put that in perspective for me. So um, there's 13, I'm done. There is severe evil, which I've seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. Riches kept 
or the owner to his hurt. And that can mean a lot of different things. And what is it? Gosh, it went in and out. What it, um, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, I'm grateful for every thing that we have. Um, well, most everything that we have. Um, I'm grateful for that which God has given us and God has provided for us um, to be here and to be able to do this work, and, but, but also to, to have a house to live in um, and, and not be out in the cold and have food to eat. Uh, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Um, and I'm grateful for our standard of living. And I think we can be grateful for our standard of living. And unless God has called you, I'm trying to get some balance here, all right? So that's why I'm taking even more. Unless God has called you to take a vow of poverty, and I think God does from time to time call those who take a vow of poverty in the same way that he calls some to take a vow of celibacy. Unless he calls you to take a vow of poverty, and I'm thinking of... uh, um, his name has escaped me. I'm, I'm having trouble tonight. Um, maybe it was the story about the 4th of July that did me under. But um, I hope not. <laughs> you would know, huh? <laughs> anyway, um, Rich Mullins. Rich Mullins. He was a Christian musician. He, he died in a car accident back in about 25 years ago. Our God is an awesome God. He wrote that song, okay? Um, Amy Grant, sing your praises to the Lord. He wrote that song. Anyway, he's really one of my favorite Christian artists. Um, well, when he passed away, he was living on a Navajo Indian reservation. And the bulk of his money was he was giving away to different Christian organizations because he had taken a vow of poverty. That's just what he was called to do. He believed. Better not to vow. See how this ties back in? Better not to vow than to make a vow and not pay it. And so you read this 10 through 13. Keep it in strong perspective, but don't allow yourself to be beat up by it unless and I don't know unless God is really calling you to take a vow of poverty that's between you and him that's not I I don't get involved in that right Uh, I don't believe that God has called us to Mary just went no I'm kidding but (laughs) but but and so in that regard too, do not feel guilty about your standard of living but if you do then you got to explore why then you've got to ask why. And, and you, you've got to take that before the Lord and, and work that out with him. And that is part of working out your own salvation in fear and trembling that Paul talked about in the book of Philippians. So, Father, 